from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Joining us on this fifth and final episode of the Ditchley podcast series is Shaheen Vallee from the LSE, Torsten Bell, director of the Resolution Foundation. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for your time. The subject for this one is should governments be more interventionist? So that's the question, Torsten Bell. So I mean, there's lots of ways to answer this, but I think one simple way is to say there are lots of ways there is now a growing consensus that the state is going to do more. And I say that for a number of reasons. On the most basic level, because there's just a big demand for some of the things the state does in most, although not all of our societies. And healthcare is the biggest one where as societies get richer, one of the things we've learned over time is that what people want are more takeaways and more health. The state doesn't provide the takeaways, but it does in the UK provide the healthcare. And that is a big upward pressure on the size and the spending of the state. It either squeezes out other areas of state activity or if you can raise taxes over time, provides and leads to a bigger state. And this is importantly not just about an ageing society, it's also about healthcare costs rising faster than your GDP on average. Then there are a whole other chunk of things that reasonable people might want the state to be doing more of. I'll just give you a list. These are things that maybe people might think we weren't doing enough of in the past. So for example, protecting people from the risk of where they're born determining all of their life chances is a big area, particularly as we see big active debates about some areas of the country growing faster than others. They might ask the state to protect people from the risk about who they were born to, not just in the traditional way of providing education for everybody, even if their parents can't afford to pay for it, but also as wealth becomes a more important determinant of our overall living standards, then people may start asking the state to have a role in that. As wealth gets much bigger compared to income, it's harder to pretend that that can just be done by individuals on their own. Then there's labour market risk, pension risk. For example, in the UK at the moment, we leave individuals to bear almost all of their longevity risk, which is mad. That should clearly be socialised. So that's another area where you might see fairly technocratic, but people wanting the state to bear more risk. Then there are a whole host of other things, which are, you know you hear a lot in the public debate now. State nationalising things, more state role in merger control, new forms of industrial change being held back by the state. High streets is the most recent example. Credit direction in the Labour Manifesto last time. More competition policies to tackle big giants. All of these things are big, either new or revived or renewed roles for the state. So there's lots of big roles for the state. I'd say that, that is, it's upward pressure on the role of the state is the era we live in. What, what factors should a government take into account when considering whether to be more interventionist? Well, I, I take a slightly less optimistic view that Horsten has just exposed, because while I think there is indeed growing demands, we're also coming out of, um, of an intellectual consensus on these issues where... Um, I think sort of neoliberals, to use, to use a, a loaded terms, but I think neoliberals held the higher ground and had even convinced many social democrats that their worldview insofar as the place for the state uh, was the right one. And so we were in, a, in an intellectual consensus where basically 
you know, market forces and uh, allocation of capital and resources in that way were the dominating force and that we might tolerate a bit of government intervention to alleviate the social consequences of that and maybe maintain some semblance of, of environmental sustainability. So I think this is the intellectual place from where we're coming from and we're quite and quite departed that uh, consensus in order to be able to have the state meet the demands uh, that Thorsten has just mentioned. I think the issues where the consensus is moving is A, on the need for greater redistribution, whichever shape and form it takes. I think we have accepted collectively that we are in an economy with uh, forces that concentrate wealth and income and that aggravate inequalities. And so as a result of this sort of winner-takes-all economy that sort of you know, centralizes wealth and uh, increases the number of bullshit jobs in the economy, there is an acceptance that we are to move towards more redistribution. Uh, but that's in principle. When you look at it in practice, everybody is you know, agreeing to that basic notion, but everybody is very reluctant to agree to the flip side of that, which is that we have to increase taxes in order to increase redistribution. The second area on which I think there is an evolving consensus is on the regulatory state, so the ability of regulation to impact economic uh, outcomes. And I think that is moving in large part because of realization of how much we can do through regulation in the environmental space. But there again, you know, we're coming from a place where the deregulation was viewed as the alpha and the omega of economic policy. So while we're moving somewhat in this direction, I don't think we have completely done uh, that transition. There is another area which was briefly mentioned, which is the issue of competition and industrial policy. And so here again, I think there is generally a moving consensus on how industrial policy can improve economic outcomes, but nobody really knows how to do industrial policy. And everybody is afraid of sort of the, you know, white elephants and the in industrial policy failures that have crippled a number of advanced economies. So I think Thorsten is right to say that there, there are shifts, there are profound shifts taking place, but they're not quite uh, complete yet. And I think we still are captive of sort of pretty deep intellectual and political issues that are uh, un unsettled. Thorsten Berger, you spoke about the increase in pressures for governments to be more interventionist. The subject of the whole conference here in Digi has been how to increase growth, how to increase productivity. So how do you order where governments should intervene to get the best growth, to get the strongest productivity growth? That's a really good question. Why, why, do, why do people in some ways want government to sort some things out, to put it in a blunter way? Well, partly because things have been really rubbish. The, um, and low productivity growth is one of the ways economists phrase things have been really rubbish for quite some time. And I think that, that this is where there is a big challenge for the state, which is, as I said, there's a lot of upward pressure on some things the state already does like healthcare, I'd add childcare properly to that mix. Those have both, they do have economic benefits, but they are not policies directly focused on tackling the productivity challenges in many ways the underpinning thing we want to do. And so it may be that you have got some tension that politicians and policymakers have to wrestle with, which is how do they deliver the, almost the consumption goods from the welfare state that we all want without squeezing out the ability of the estate to provide what you might want to call the more kind of active industrial for example you wouldn't have it this bluntly but maybe there's a tension between the role of the state in delivering healthcare and delivering a radical green agenda that you know motivates a new sector provides new directions now the very best state could probably do all these things can use a mix of regulation and spend to make sure that it's never 
uh, without agency, but anyone that's actually worked in a government will recognise there are real trade-offs between our ability to do anything. And so the idea that you can do all these things with equal excellence and without trade-offs is kind of for the birds. So I do think there is a very real trade-off there. And Shahid, what might be intervention for one country might be seen as protectionism for another. So where, where do you draw that boundary? Is it a boundary that can be policed? No, that, that's a particularly uh, important point in the European, in the, in the European context. Um, when you think of industrial policy in Europe, in many ways, for many countries, there was a very clear sort of beggar-than-neighbor aspect to industrial policy. Um, it was about upholding, protecting national champions, regardless of whether it made a lot of sense for the state to be involved in that particular sector or in that particular uh, business. And so I think that's a critical uh, issue. In response to that, because we felt this was a, a real concern, we have had a, I think, very uh, narrow-minded competition policy, which has in large part prevented industrial policy. And by narrow-minded, I mean narrow-minded almost in a good sense, in the people who designed it, narrow-minded in the sense that its only objective was preserve the interest of the consumer at a given point in time. And so, in my view, this competition policy both lacked foresight in the sense that protecting the consumer today might be at the expense of the consumer tomorrow, um, and it lacked uh, an international vision because it didn't see that protecting the consumer today might undermine the consumer tomorrow because it will deprive a given country or a given continent of you know, a national or a European champion that would compete with the future companies that would emerge in the rest of the world. So I think there is some slight movement there in the sense that there is a realization that there are areas where in order not to have an industrial policy at the national level that is going to be a beggar thy neighbor policy, we need to have a European industrial policy. So there's some movement there, but it's been very timid. Uh, I mean, the, the biggest and most famous example is in the um, aeronautics uh, space with, uh, with uh, EADS and, 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 and Airbus. But beyond that, European industrial policy doesn't have much to show for. And it's pretty disappointing because we had in a number of areas an expertise that I think would have allowed Europe together, maybe not each individual country, but Europe together, to stay at the forefront of technological change. When I think of uh, aerospace, for instance, we used to have the best uh, satellite launchers in the world, and today we're basically in competition um, uh, with SpaceX in the US, which has cut costs tremendously. We're in competition with Russia. Uh, we're going to be in competition with, with China. So, you know, this was one area where I think having invested common resources, having agreed that we needed a monopoly in Europe uh, would have been a good thing. The same goes for train and turbines. So there are a number of examples where Europe was at the forefront, could have stayed at the forefront had it had a sensible competition and industrial policy, and we've been short of both. Torsten about obviously, um, governments, if they want to intervene, they need money. One area where governments appear to have not been able to get as much money as citizens would like them to get are from multinational companies, particularly tech companies. How can European governments get better at this? Well, I mean, there's obviously 
large chunks of what governments want to do does involve cash, although not not everything, and we should be careful to say that everything involves more money, but lots of it does. On the, on the tech companies specifically, without going into the weeds of kind of platform companies and their exact roles, our inability to tax them is a subset of our wider challenge of taxing large multinationals without lots of physical capital in the 21st century. It's not it, the tax problem. There's lots of things that are regulatory specific to digital platforms, not least data protection things. The tax problem is a semi-generalizable problem that we see in other areas. That this this sector just happens to be the highest profile right now for obvious reasons. They've grown. They're huge. They're in all our lives. We can't get off the bloody Twitter. They have all of that stuff. So that's why we're talking about now. Some people conclude from that that you definitely you should just try and solve the underlying tax problem and then and not ever do anything towards the tech companies with tax. My only slight worry about that is that we don't have the answer to solving the underlying tax problem. It's really hard. And so I'm more sympathetic, for example, to debates being set up by the UK government, who's actually now said they're going to go ahead with a turnover tax on some digital firms, only a very small subset of the very largest. But the, um, and there's obviously a discussion at a European level, even though there's not agreement at the moment about a not dissimilar tax, but trying to get at the same problem, which is we can't solve the underlying problem, so we'll have a kind of top-up tax just to get a bit. For for reasons of some revenue in the door, for reasons of making the point, and for reasons of public legitimacy and support, I don't think those kind of what you might call ad hoc taxes are totally unacceptable, even if they're not getting at the underlying problem, which is we can't tax large companies in the 21st century, or we can't at the moment. If I may, if I may add to that, I completely share the view that the problem is much bigger than the digital companies, and I think the problem also has sort of an ideational foundation, which is that in Europe we believe that tax competition is a good thing. That you know it kind of prevents excessive. Or at least we secretly think it is. Yeah. Even if we don't say it. Or, or let's say we're divided on the issue, and yeah. there are enough countries on the continent who believe that uh, tax competition is a good thing, and that they are entitled to low tax rates because they are at the periphery of the continent, they're not the heart of the industrial base of the continent, and therefore they need some sort of an advantage to compensate for that. I think so long as this belief is there, it's going to be very hard to address the heart of the issue. So long as in Europe we accept there is space and a large space for tax competition, I think we will not solve the issue. And this is one area where I think Europeans are really schizophrenic because we talk as though we are collective victims of uh, tax evasion globally and that these bad American companies are evading taxes. But the reality is it's Europe's institutions that allows for a large part these tax evasions to take place. You know, I think from a global standpoint, Europe is a dark hole when it comes to taxes. And sometimes we fail to see that, but really we as a continent are, are complicit of a, of a global problem. Torsten Bell, there was some discussion upstairs about um, what is a public good and what deserves government attention. I mean, is this something that's developing? Are there some areas of the economy that will always be a public good, that will always be the responsibility of the government? So without wanting to get to kind of textbooks about this, so the, the debate really ranges between there are some traditional, what you might call traditional roles of the state, by which I mean, by traditional I'm talking about pre-1900 traditional, which is the provision of public goods, which it is literally impossible for the private sector to provide security of the military, justice, things where you would see it as like a core function of making the state exist. And that some people would argue that over the course of the 20th century, those have been squeezed out by other things, such as either what you would see as consumables that, or a redistributive role, whether it's via services or via tax and benefits, or via what 
I think is a kind of key role of a modern state, which is the sharing, pooling, or at least socialising of risk, making sure that individuals do not have to bear risks that they are not in a good situation to bear. Really obvious examples of that are in healthcare, where healthcare is not a public good in the traditional sense, but it does involve huge variation of risks that we do not want to leave individuals to bear on their own based on their own economic circumstances. And pension provision would be another one where we know there's huge uncertainty about when we'll die. And the idea that individuals should bear that risk and try and individually cope with that huge uncertainty of whether they die at 65 or 95 is mad in my view. So these clearly is a role for a state, both in these traditional roles of public goods, but also in this socialising of risk function. It's an economics conference, so it's maybe a bit of a cheeky question, but should governments intervene to try and make their citizens happier? Yeah, I think it's a good question. You know, is, is the measure of success for a government the growth in GDP or is it or is it something else? And I think it's a very valid point. I could connect that to a big debate about growth and you know a future without growth that a lot of in particular environmental activists believe is the is the way forward and while i don't quite know how to fit that into my my economic models i i have some sympathy for the argument that you know instead of frantically trying to boost gdp growth we should also learn to live with more modest levels of of growth and therefore seek satisfaction in, in other aspects of human human development. There is some empirical work about that. You know, some people are, you know, I think there are a couple of countries that are now, you know, producing a, a happiness uh, index. So uh, there is something to do uh, around these issues. What I think we don't know how to do here is how do we make our uh, welfare state function on a sustainable basis without some level of GDP growth. And that's something that at the moment we haven't quite uh, squared, but uh, that we should think about citizens' happiness beyond GDP growth. I think something that's uh, that's quite urgent. Do you agree with that, Torsten Bell? Yeah. I mean, the problem with not having growth is it makes everything else much harder. There are strong arguments, obviously, that, that bad growth, bad for sustainability, bad for inequality are things that policy should actively look to avoid. I think if people want to advocate no growth at all, then you need to be very clear what it is you're prepared to see. You're prepared to see declining levels of healthcare in the longer term, given what the cost base of our health service looks like. So it's, it is not without trade-offs that goal, but clearly the insight that there's more to life than economic growth, I hope so, the, um, uh, and that we do not want all growth at all costs. I kind of think those have become hopefully common sense views by this point. On that note, Torsten Bell, Shane Valley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.